Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 25 in our series for 2016. And today's date is July 22. And this week, we're taking a look at the Pokemon Go phenomenon. We're having a chat to Larissa Hjorth. She's a distinguished professor, an artist, digital ethnographer, and professor in the games programs of RMIT University. School of Media and Communication. Yeah, the I noticed this morning that the projections for uh, Nintendo's revenue from Pokemon Go's is somewhere up around five billion a year. That is extraordinary. Thirty-five cents a day, and that's what it comes to. And then also, we're talking to economist Shane Oliver of AMP. That's right. Uh, Shane Oliver will be talking to us about why the markets are rebounding post Brexit. People are looking for somewhere to put their money, and the share prices are going up. That's right. So anyway, let's have a chat to Larissa Hjorth. Two decades ago, a Japanese computer game called Pokemon made Nintendo, with its Game Boy console, one of the most successful electronic companies in the world. Hundreds of millions of these things were sold all over the world and since then in a much more crowded computer and mobile device era Nintendo has faded a little until now. Here, weeks ago, Pokemon came roaring back as Pokemon Go, the latest, at least until the next global gaming fad, and the greatest game to play out in the open on a smartphone. It's a fad, it's a phenomenon. And here in Melbourne, in the School of Media and Communication at RMIT University, we have an expert on this soaring phenomenon, its predecessors and where it might be going. She is Professor Larissa Horth, an artist and digital ethnographer in the School of Media and Communications at RMIT University. For the past 16 years, she has been researching the gendered and socio-cultural dimensions of mobile media and play cultures in the Asia-Pacific area. Who better then for us to ask about Pokemon Go and where it might be going? Larissa Hjorth, you've been doing some research on Pokemon. Tell us about it. In general, I've been looking at mobile media in Japan for about 15 years. I was living there at the beginning of 2000 when um, IMO took off, which is like the precursor to the iPhone. Um, And I was also looking a lot at kawaii culture, which is what Pokemon comes out of, which kawaii in Japanese is cute culture. So in Japan, they have a long, long history of using cute things to familiarize new technology to make it comfortable, you know, because a lot of the time people feel with new technology, it's like, oh, it's a bit scary. It's a bit unknown. Um, But the cuteness actually makes it, gives it a kind of an emotional kind of um, effect. But this isn't peculiarly Japanese anymore, is it? No. This is global. This is global, yes. And at the moment, principally Western. Yes, it is. It's funny. It actually hasn't taken off in Japan at all. <laughs> well, this is, this is interesting because, I mean, it's been such an extraordinary, it had su- it's had such an extraordinary impact, particularly on the share price of yes. Nintendo. Yes, oh, totally. Which is Did now, you have any shares in it, no, by the way? No, no. Oh, no which no, is now might. a $30 billion yes, company. yes. Uh, because of this. But what has actually been driving it and what can businesses learn from this phenomenal success? Yes. Well, I mean, the thing is, what I in studying mobile media for 15 years, one of the things that I've really realized is that killer apps never, they get killed. You know, so when every time industry thinks, wow, this is going to be the next thing, like video, mobile, it's going to take off. And then it goes... Um, and things like SMS, for example, that was actually invented for deaf people. And then young people took, you know, thought, wow, this is really cool. This is cheap. This is convenient. We can, you know 
talking compressed speak. This is awesome. And they ran with it and it became one of the most popular apps. So if we can learn anything from mobile media, it is that it's always surprising us in terms of what takes off. Now with Pokemon Go, it's so interesting because there is about a 20 year, like two decades of locative media urban games, which were always a very niche thing. So there's things like um, Pac Manhattan, which is where people dressed up as Pac-Man and ran around the streets of Manhattan um, in an augmented reality. So it was like the kind of precursor, um, you know, 15 years prior to Pokemon Go. So in a sense, it's really interesting. Why is it, what is it now about this particular time that makes something like Pokemon Go just take off in like, it's the, like the, the, the spirit of the times. Yeah. So, so what, what is it about it that, that drove it? Well, I think, I mean, one of the things like if you haven't played it before, I mean, it is really built on a kind of treasure hunt. It's like an augmented reality treasure hunt. So you go through and you're walking the streets, but at the same time, you're looking through your mobile phone, as you do when you're looking for a location. But instead of just looking for a location, you're actually looking for the little Pokemon points, like the balls to get some more points and things like that. Um, so what it does, you know, a lot of the people have said, oh, wow, it's great because people get really fit. You know, you have to do a lot of walking to get balls. Although I do know some people who do cheat. They get on trams and they just go along. <laughs> so, we, you know, cheaters aren't really welcomed in this world. Partly a community, though, isn't it, that Pokemonites tend to be together? Well, I mean, what is the great thing about it is that games fundamentally have always been very social and they've always been about place. Um, and in the last, say, decade or something, that's kind of been missing from a lot of video games. But what Pokemon does is it reinforces that place has always mattered. Um, so people are walking around their neighbourhoods. They're going, they're walking around. The kind of cartography that they're mapping is very different than what they would normally do because they're following the game map rather than the normal banal street map. Um, and so it's a, it's a way of rediscovering place. So I found parts in my neighbourhood, which, you know, I've lived there for 17 years and been like, wow, I never went down the street. I never realised there was this monument here to this particular person who lived in, you know, 1900. You know, so, so it's really kind of quite fascinating that way. And then you discover people who are playing and they're all different generations who are out wandering the street as well. Um, you know, it could look like a bit like a zombie film, but it's not because everyone's kind of like, into, you know, they're, they're like, oh, what have you found? You know, and everyone's sharing. It's a very, it's very social and very much about sharing. And occasionally walking into walls. Well, yes, but that's, I mean, you're always going to have that when people try and do two things at once. As much as we start to say, you know, in this accelerated society, we're trying to do many things at once. Fundamentally, we can't, you know, you shouldn't drive and use your mobile phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So now what happens when business gets into this because, okay, I'm looking for a, a particular Pokemon yep. and it's in an ice cream shop yes. or it's in Myers. Yes, yes. Then it starts to get like an attraction to bring, bringing people in and hope they'll spend. Yes, yes. So one of the things about Pokemon Go is that it's like the notion of the phoneur and the phoneur is the 21st century flaneur. So it's it's the person who wanders the streets and takes in the sights and the spectacular, but it is through consumption and it is also through data. So one of the things about using Pokemon Go is that you are leaving a data trail. So this is going to be very interesting for companies in terms of understanding how consumers walk the streets, the kind of habits that they have, etc. Um, and I think, yes, it can be very much used in a marketing way although at the moment it's not so much because it's using the old maps of its precursor um, augmented reality game Ingress um, which had a lot of the um, points built around 
uh, key historical sites or monuments. But definitely, I mean, there is that capacity to build in, um, you know, commodification in there. I've noticed some of the businesses that are really benefiting from it are restaurants. Yeah. I mean, I've read of places in uh, Chicago yeah. that have actually set up Pokemon gyms, <laughs> of all things, and uh, while you go in there and eat as well. Right, okay. And you, you find the whatever you're looking for. Yes, yeah. And uh, and it's it's really drawing in a new breed of clientele. Yeah. Well, I would, I would think that actually something like pop-up restaurants in parks because there's a parks tend to have a lot of pokemon balls and stuff like that so there's definitely some trade there but yeah there's definitely there's ways in which you can use that mapping device to kind of um you know um make people do different kind of uh navigations but gps is now in stores anyway Yes. With iBeacon. So it would be quite easy for Amara or DJs or somebody yes. to put Pokemon targets into. Yes, they probably need to negotiate with, yes. um, with the company as well, to. Well, I'm sure know, the yeah. company would love the money. Yes, yes, yes. So that it, in, in many ways, it's partly social. Yes. But it's also potentially very commercial. Yes. Well, that's where the phoneer really comes into play because it is really we are in when we use these kind of games, we're actually we're data citizens, and so data is going out to corporations, you know, um, and also that data can be used by corporations to, um, you know, kind of to sell. Yes, definitely, and and potentially it can be used by corporations to actually build new markets. Definitely, yes. So then you get big data saying, you're female, he's male, we know something of your profile, we know a fair amount about him. So you get to the door of a big store and it suddenly says, hey, there's a big deal on hats or shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And go find the Pokemon and it will lead you to the special. Yes. But one of the things, I mean, so one of the things that I do is I'm a digital ethnographer and digital ethnographers are really interested in much more the motivation rather than what people do. It's the why, you know, because actually, you know, you can, you can, the thing about like big data is we can get these big visualizations about so-and-so amount of people, you know, 6 million people in the US are consuming Pokemon Go at these times of the day or whatever. But that doesn't actually give us a really, deep sense of why they're doing it and it's the why that is the kind of thing that strings through all our cultural practices so do you think it's got a a life though or a half-life that ultimately go down and there'll be something um, take angry birds for example yes yeah huge yes now it's kind of they're even making a movie yes oh yes i saw that movie and it was like i was thinking how can they make like basically a five minute game into a movie they can't yes So, I mean, there is enormous opportunity here. Mm. And, but, but the question is, why? Well, again, as I said, I think it's it's the fact that it is, as a game, it is very place-orientated. Um, I think the fact that it is using, you know, people have to walk around their neighbourhoods and discover, and so they become kind of investigators. And I think that kind of walking, moving, talking to other people, it's like that's what has always made games so popular in the past, and that's what's bringing a whole lot of people to play it. And what's really interesting is when you go out and see people playing it's it's a whole lot of different generations so it's a bit like when Nintendo Wii came out and everyone was like oh my god you know grandparents are playing with their grandchildren I never thought this would happen you know so well is acquisition also an element that you know, you might collect certain kinds of Pokemon yes well I think also so the 
in terms of the intergenerational um, dimension, I mean, I think some people are coming to it. So, my, for example, my son plays it. He's a six-year-old. He's only just discovered Pokemon. But for me, coming along to it, it's like a very nostalgic thing. And I think you're getting these different filters of nostalgia kind of playing through motivations. Larissa Hjorth, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Pokemon started in 1995 on Game Boy. That's right. And uh, there were 200 million of those sold. It went into a bit of a doldrum. Now it's back, even bigger. It is huge, and it's changing every bit. I found it interesting what the business implications are and how it's going to change businesses. Yeah, Larissa mentioned that, and I think she's right, that commerce will get in there just as they got into Twitter and Facebook. Absolutely. And now Shane Oliver. We spoke to Shane on Skype uh, using his laptop, and there's a bit of echo. Shane Oliver, the markets have rebounded and wiped out the all the post-Brexit losses and uh, they've been going gangbusters. Can you explain that? I think there's a bunch of factors going on here um, in the last few weeks. And, of course, it has been a scary few weeks in terms of the Brexit votes, you know, terrorist attacks, um, messy Australian election and so on. But I think there's a bunch of factors going on which have helped markets. Firstly, post-Brexit, we have seen more monetary easing around the world or at least indications from central banks that they may ease further. So the monetary environment's been very conducive to a rally in shares. Secondly, of course, you've seen economic data around the world being quite reasonable. We certainly haven't seen the recession that many people were fearful of. Um, We've seen signs in the US, for example, that profit growth may be bottoming out and might be starting to improve. Um, We've also got the reality that the big decline in bond yields which occurred after Brexit, actually made shares look more attractive. And on top of this, um, I guess some of the fears around Brexit have receded a little bit. Um, That fear that there'd been an immediate domino effect of countries across the Eurozone leaving uh, the Eurozone hasn't played out. If anything, there's been a bit of a swing back the other way, albeit early days yet. And of course, in the case of the UK itself, there's still an ongoing debate as to when Brexit will, will occur and what nature it will take when it does occur, if it does occur. So all of those things, I think, have helped share markets. Well, the issue, too, is that uh, Brexit will take, well, they have to uh, invoke Article 50, and that could take two years. So there's a lot of water to go under that bridge. There's certainly a lot of water to go under the bridge regarding Brexit. Um, the Article 50 has to be invoked. That may not occur till later this year or next year. And then, of course, that sets off a two-year negotiation period. Um, So it may be uh, two and a half years or so before we know the final outcome in terms of how this proceeds. And I guess at the end of the day, they may all conclude, well, it's all too difficult. The deal we've come up with uh, leaves leaves us worse off and they end up staying. Or alternatively, uh, you end up with a very mild deal like, say, Norway has. So a lot of uncertainty around this. And, And I think... The other thing to note is that uh, yeah, there's a question mark as to whether other European countries will follow. Italy is perhaps the most at risk, but many European countries tend to see themselves as far more European than the UK did. And therefore, the incentive um, for them to leave, I think, is a lot lower than it is the case for the UK. And of course, the numbers coming out of the US suggest that with a strong jobs growth figures, for example, suggest that Fed won't be in an enormous hurry to um, raise interest rates. That's right. Uh, The US economy is growing. It hasn't uh, collapsed into the recession that many feared uh, were starting to fear earlier this year. So that's the good news. Um, I guess the flip side, though, is that uh, growth is not still booming. Um, They don't have an inflation problem. So therefore, any interest rate hikes that the Fed may put through are going to be very gradual and very moderate. Um, Still a debate as to whether they will raise interest rates this year or not. I think they probably will. Um, but it's probably only going to be one hike. And don't forget, at the start of the year, uh, the Fed itself was 
was suggesting at least two hikes, possibly even more. So there's been a winding back. No, actually, in fact, it was four hikes at the start of the year. They got wound back to two, um, which is currently the case in the market. And my own view is that it's probably going to be one or could even be less. So the Fed has turned out to be far more benign than might have been feared, say, six months ago. And the market would have priced all of that in, wouldn't they? The market has uh, moved to price all that in. Of course, after the Brexit vote, um, the probability of a Fed hike this year went to almost zero, I think down as low as 10% or something like that. In fact, uh, the market was starting to price in the prospect of a Fed rate cut this year. Now, that was probably an overreaction to um, post, the, the, the post, in the post-Brexit environment. Um, now, of course, I think the market's talking about a 41% probability of a hike this year. So uh, chances are uh, we won't see a hike, I mean, if it's 41%. Well, that's what the market's saying. I I suspect the market's probably gotten a little bit too negative on the US and and I'd put the probabilities at just a bit over 50% and and therefore lean towards one hike this year. But it may not come till December. And, of course, if if that's the story, you know, we had one hike last year, one hike this year, you're still going to be left with a very low interest rate environment in the US and indeed globally. Now, the other vexed issue is about the Chinese one and what's happening there. And what's your view about the, the devaluation? Well, the devaluation has certainly uh, uh, picked up again. Um, it's come in waves, uh, August last year, then later this year, early this year, and then, of course, more recently. Um, I think the reality is that, of course, whenever the US dollar goes up, the Chinese feel motivated to reduce the value of the Chinese currency. And uh, on, a, on a trade-weighted basis, um, the Chinese currency hasn't fallen nearly as much. I think the key thing of interest, though, is that on the last two occasions when the Chinese currency was devaluing, that's August, September last year, and then late last year, early this year, um, there was a lot more panic around about um, capital outflows out of China. And, of course, we haven't seen that this time around. That's why I think the markets are a lot more relaxed. We haven't seen the panicky capital outflows from China. If anything, I think investors are saying, well, OK, we've gotten used to um, a depreciation or a falling value in the in the Chinese currency. It used to be very stable. Took a while to get it to adjust to the new movements we're seeing in, in that currency, but now we're used to it. It's not such a big deal anymore. And of course, uh, the Chinese property market is uh, going very strongly as well, and that's holding up the economy there. It has. Uh, go back three years ago, everyone was talking about ghost cities, um, massive overbuilding of Chinese uh, of Chinese residential property. Now, of course, in the last uh, year or so, we've seen the Chinese property market pick up again in terms of prices. And, of course, the most recent numbers showed price growth across the, the top, the major cities, the top 70 cities, of around uh, 7.5%, which is not uh, not bad, given where it was a couple of years ago, people talking about a property crash. Um, so we certainly haven't seen that. And I think that the reality is that the Chinese property market is still somewhat undersupplied in terms of uh, areas where people are actually demanding property. And I think that's the big issue here. And that, of course, that strength, that renewed strength in the Chinese property market has helped underpin strength in the Chinese economy. And that, of course, has also been helped by uh, monetary easing and fiscal stimulus in China. Now, uh, to Australia, and of course, we've had an incredibly tight election result. And uh, there's been all sorts of speculation about uh, what the new parliament will need for will mean for a budget repair. Uh, But the market seems to have responded quite well to all of that. (laughs) It has. Yeah. I mean, there was a little bit of nervousness uh, on the first day 
after the election, mainly relating to bank shares and worries about a royal commission into the banks. Uh, but since then, the market seems to have thought, well, uh, the coalition is going to be returned. It's really more of the same. I guess that the big difference is, is that there's no mandate for the government to undertake much in the way of economic reform or uh, much in the way of cutting government spending. And so that's the big problem for Australia. But of course, the market has generally tended to look through that. Now, we do have a more difficult Senate. And of course, we are further down the track in terms of budget deterioration. And the patience of ratings agencies has, has worn thin. And of course, one of them put us on negative outlook, which is probably the most worrying thing around all of this. Um, but even then, the market hasn't been too worried about it. Maybe investors have said, well, Australia goes from AAA to AA plus or whatever it is, not the end of the world. Um, look at the US, look at the UK, look at other parts of the world where ratings are a lot lower than they are in relation to Australia. So what's your view about a ratings cut? What would that mean for Australia? Uh, well, firstly, I think the the chance of occurring is actually odds on. Several reasons for that. I, I think that um, when you look at uh, the budget deficit, uh, the level of public debt in Australia, a whole bunch of factors are actually worse than when we were downgraded back in, uh, first downgraded back in 1986. Um, would it be a disaster for Australia? Well, technically, no. If you look at countries who do um, have had ratings downgrades in the past, most notably the US in 2011, of course, the UK a few weeks ago, um, it hasn't led to a massive increase in interest rates. So I don't think it would be a disaster for Australia. By the same token, I think it would be psychologically a bit of a blow because we spent a whole lot of efforts after the uh, the 1980s downgrade to get the Australian economy back in shape. And of course, uh, this would suggest, well, maybe we've, we've started to to, to drop the ball again. So that, that, I think, would be seen as a bit of a negative for Australia. Well, of course, uh, in the 1980s, uh, when we were downgraded, we had a whole lot of microeconomic reform that uh, made us actually really, really competitive. We're unlikely to see that happening this time around. Well, that's the problem, that uh, after the downgrade in the 1980s, there was a whole lot of reforms went through the economy. Um, it, it sort of invigorated that that period uh, under uh, Hawke and Keating. And then, of course, well, uh, as we went through the 1990s with Howard and Costello, um, it unveiled a period of rapid reform, competition reforms, privatisations, deregulation, and all of those things opened the economy up and we ended up with a, uh, a far more productive economy. Now, the benefit of that has started to fade lately. And of course, it, that, that fading benefit was masked by the, the mining boom. Of course, that's now gone away as well. And the likelihood is we face a more constrained um, growth outlook going forward because we haven't kept up the pace in terms of microeconomic reform. So that is a bit of a concern for Australia. It's not a disaster. But by the same token, it does mean we'll end up um, with a lower potential growth rate than would otherwise have been the case. And therefore, living standards may not grow as quickly as would have otherwise been the case. So that's a bit of a negative. Hopefully, if there is a ratings downgrade, it might put more pressure on the government to do something on those fronts. But I, I guess the concern is that there's not much, uh, not much motivation in the electorate at the moment to do those sorts of things. Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. So how do you read that, Leon? Well, I think it's interesting. I, you know, I, I just wonder how long it can keep going up, though. You know, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's all predicated on Britain actually negotiating a good exit from the EU. Now, if they don't, you can bet it will hit the global economy and it will certainly hit Britain and Britain will fall into recession. Yeah, I think that's right. But it's very interesting. There's uh, Theresa May having dinner with Angela Merkel last night. 
and obviously very friendly, obviously women of a similar stamp. Angela Merkel has come out today saying you can't actually invoke Article 50 until next year. So they're, by, they're playing for time. And so we don't know how long it's going to take. And it could take quite some time. Uh, or indeed, in perfidious Albion, remember, it may not happen at all. That's right. Okay, now the news, Leon. Well, Gary, yes, there's been some fascinating news is that the uh, International Monetary Fund has trimmed its forecast for global economic growth following Britain's decision to leave the EU. The IMF now expects GDP to grow at 3.1% in 2016 and 3.4% in 2017. This is down 0.1 percentage points for each year from estimates issued in April. It's the fifth time in 15 months that the IMF's World Economic Outlook has cut its forecast. The IMF forecasts Britain's economy to grow 1.7% this year, down 0.2 percentage points from its April estimates, and in 2017 it will grow even less at 1.3% in 2017. But the issue is it's not sure whether Britain's going to negotiate a good exit from the EU, and it warns that if it doesn't, all hell could break loose. Yeah, I think uh, given the skills in London and Frankfurt and Berlin, it might just happen to be quite smooth. Well, let's hope so. Now, Republican candidate Donald Trump has left Wall Street on edge by calling for the breakup of the banks. And the Cleveland Republican Convention adopted policies that include reinstating the Glass-Steagall banking law to effectively break up the big banks. Now, Glass-Steagall was, of course, a Depression-era law separating commercial and investment bank, which was repealed under President Bill Clinton in 1999. Trump's platform is an obvious strategy to lure disaffected Bernie Sanders voters over to Trump's side. At the same time, the Democrats, led by Hillary Clinton, are taking a similar stance. And the Democrats are moving in this direction with Bernie Sanders, Ms. Clinton's opponent in the primaries, and a self-declared socialist using his influence on the party to get tough on Wall Street. So watch that space. I think Wall Street would be very worried. Bear in mind, similar sort of things happening here. But... That's right. Uh, the Governance Institute released a survey yesterday showing that uh, bankers are on the nose. Absolutely. A bit like politicians. That's right. Now, Gary, in the end, the Liberal Party room mutiny against proposed changes to Australia's superannuation system turned into damp squib. For all the talk about super on the airwaves by disgruntled libs like former Minister Erica Betts, who claimed it cost the coalition votes in the knife-edge election, the issue was not raised during the one-hour meeting with the joint party room comprising libs and on Monday. And during the meeting, MPs were briefed by party strategist Mark Textor, who told them super was barely an issue for votes, and whereas jobs and the economy rated at 30% as a top-of-mind issue for the electorate, super only came in at 6%. Now, the two big issues in contention are the $500,000 lifetime cap on non-concessional contributions, backdated 2007. That makes them retrospective. And they're worth $500 million in savings to the budget over four years and dropping the annual limit on contributions taxed at the concessional rate of 15% from 30000 to 25000 or from 35000 to 25000 for those aged 50 and over. And that's worth $2 billion in savings over four years. Now, the Treasurer, Scott Morrison, has come out saying he'll arrange a forum to hear suggestions from the backbench on any of the changes before he presents them with legislation. But National MP George Christensen is threatening to cross the floor and vote against the coalition's superannuation policy if it hasn't changed. It's understood Christensen said nothing when the policy was discussed in the joint party room meeting on Monday, but on his Facebook page, he said he'd made his views known to the National Party's leadership about changing the proposed $500,000 non-concessional lifetime cap and its retrospectivity, along with the $1.6 million pension fund transfer balance cap. And the government is looking to play cape anger 
by inserting exemptions to the $500,000 lifetime cap on non-concessional contributions. And these exemptions would be for life events classified as one-off windfalls, an inheritance, a divorce settlement, or eligibility for a trust payment. And these changes would cost a budget between $300 million and $450 million. And the Treasurer Scott Morrison said the money would have to be found from somewhere else because the government's main concern post-election is debt and deficit reductions, with ratings agencies now threatening to downgrade Australia's AAA credit rating. Now, I reckon if Christian does cross the floor, it will have limited impact because Labor has indicated will support most, if not all, the super changes but not the retrospectivity. And it's not clear whether the lifetime events clause insertion will placate Labor or Mr Christensen. Yeah, I don't think the Christian, a Christian can cross the floor if he wants, but I think you're right that the AOP is supporting it in general. And mostly the Nationals' objections are about what happens if you flog your farm to the Chinese? Where do you put the money? That's right. They'll work, they'll work a way around it. So let's just see what, ha- what happens in that space. Now, the Australian Competition Consumer Commission has launched its first criminal cartel case this one against global shipping company Nippon Yusen Kabushiki Keisha. The company pleaded guilty to criminal cartel conduct in the federal court, and NYK is one of the world's largest shipping companies. It has offices in Europe, Africa, East Asia, South Asia, China, Oceania, including Australia, North and South America. It operates an Australian subsidiary, NYK Line, Australia Proprietary Limited. Now, the cartel involves shipping car imports from Japan, India, Thailand, Indonesia, US and Europe. And major car manufacturers include Toyota, Suzuki, Nissan, Mazda and Honda have contracts with the company. Now, the ACCC says the case will see NYK paying a maximum fine of $10 million, three times the profit it made from the cartel content, or 10% of its turnover. And the case is returned to the federal court on September the 12th for directions. Now, two sets of figures show low interest rates are having next to no impact on Australia's housing market. First, Standard Poor's data shows that more Australians are falling behind their mortgage repayments. S&P numbers reveal that the arrears rate for prime mortgages have risen to 1.21% in May, up from 1.14% in April, and 1.07 the year before. The last time the numbers were that high was in 2011, and that's when interest rates were at a high of 4.75%. So people are falling behind their mortgage repayments when interest rates are low. And I think that um, as the economy sort of flattens out, it's going to get uh, that figure will get bigger. And despite a rate cut from the RBA in May, Housing Industry Association figures show affordability fell 3.7% during the June quarter, and affordability is now 2.1% less favourable than the same period last year. And the Capital City Housing Affordability Index fell 4.3% during the quarter, but there was a 1.9% improvement in the regional market. And that's interesting, the contrast between capital cities and the regional markets, because it shows the striking differences in affordability across Australia. The data shows affordability improvements in Perth, which rose 3.2%, Darwin, which was up 2.9%, and Hobart, which was up 2.2%. But on the other end of the scale, the biggest decline in affordability was Melbourne, which was down minus 7.4%, followed by Canberra, minus 5.7%. Sydney minus 1.6%, Adelaide minus 1.3%, and Brisbane minus 1%. So the big cities, which is where the jobs are and the demand for housing is. That's right. Now, minutes from the RBA board meeting two weeks ago where it left the cash rate steady at 1.75% indicate the RBA has left the door open to another rate cut. And the minutes make it clear the RBA is now waiting for data which will come in before its decision in August. Now, the main set of numbers will be next week's inflation report. If the numbers show that inflation is weak, it could see the RBA cutting rates to 1.5%. 
and the market's already priced in a 60% probability that that will happen. And going to 1.5% isn't really going to have much effect on that. Well, we could see from the housing figures we mentioned before. Australian super fund returns have hit a four-year low. Super fund research house Chant West figures show average returns dipped to 3% last year. That compares to a spectacular run of 15.6%, 12.8%, 9.8% over the three preceding years. And Chant West data showed that funds with a limited exposure to underperforming Australian global equities did well. And growth funds that was 61 to 80% invested in growth assets finished the year in front. All this coincides with a report from the Housing Income and Labor Dynamics Australia in Australia, the Hilda survey, showing that super will overtake the family home as the biggest asset in the next decade. And that makes sense because fewer people are now owning their homes. Workers at the uh, Arium's debt burden by LSD plan have been asked to take a 15% pay cut. The Australian Workers Union is negotiating the pay cut with administrators Cortamentha, which is, says it's stripped $300 million of costs out of the plan to make it attractive to buyers. And the pay cuts would help Cortamentha cut labour costs across Wyala and the mining operation by $30 million. Now, the survival of Wyala was a cru- played a critical role in the election campaign, Gary. If we remember, in the battle for South Australian seats, the coalition pledged a loan of nearly $50 million to Arium and, Arium, and the opposition pledged $100 million in support. A key factor in getting Chris Pine uh, re-elected. That's right. Now, the group is expected to be restructured and sold by the end of 2016. Now, ratings agency Fitch has warned that BHP Billet and Vale joint venture Samarco is heading for an imminent or inevitable debt default. And Fitch has downgraded Samarco from triple C to C, which is a level just before a company defaults or misses a debt repayment. And in the words of Fitch, the C rating has, quote, exceptionally high levels of credit risk. Default is imminent or inevitable or the issuer is in standstill, Fitch said on its website. Well, it's kind of expectable when you look at what happened over there. With Samarco now at standstill, BHP Billiton has fallen short of its iron ore production targets, but it's beaten its full year guidance for petroleum, copper and coking coal. Up front of the one that toughest year in the company's history. The slight miss in iron ore was widely predicted by the market. BHP's share of its iron ore exports was 227 million tonnes, below the revised guidance of 229 million tonnes, and the target was initially high as 237 million, but the Samarco dam spill and weakness in WA saw output slide. BHP was originally supposed to ship 270 million tonnes from Western Australia in the 2016 financial year, including tonnes owned by joint venture partners, but downgraded that target to 260 million tonnes after weather and rail management interrupted operations in the March quarter. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And uh, next week... Next week, we've got a terrific interview with RMIT academic Neville Hurst. And he is a specialist on real estate, but he is looking also at the implications of real estate not being pitched around renewable energy. Very, Very interesting bit of research he's done. Anyway, that's it for this week. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.